1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on sports, and we interview the author. This week, we are looking at youth basketball in inner-city Philadelphia. My guest is sociologist Scott Brooks, and we are talking about his book, Black Men Can't Shoot, published by the University of Chicago Press. It is well known that athletic skills and accomplishment bring an increase in social status for young males. Let's take, for example, a basketball player named Mike. Tall and gangly, Mike is a 10th grader who sits the bench for his high school team. His status on the team is so low that his name is misspelled in the game programs as milk, bringing laughs from his teammates. But one night, Mike enters the game and puts down a monster dunk over an older and better-known player. With that one play, he goes from being the laughable milk to the respected milkman, so-called because he delivers. His status on the team and in the halls of his school takes a step up. Now, if the milkman had played in South Philadelphia, his rise in social status would have extended beyond his team and school into the broader community. As Scott Brooks explains in his book and the interview, consistent displays of basketball skills or singular moments of prowess, like a dunk over a bigger, more established player, bring young players the support of older men in the community and a measure of protection at the neighborhood's rough corners. In his ethnography of inner-city basketball, Scott shows how integral the sport is to social networks in communities like South Philly, and how young players, recognizing the game's importance, develop their skills with persistence and hard work. This was a book that was hard to put down. Scott writes with the insights of a scholar and an athlete, as well as with the careful attention of someone committed to this community and to the young men he's worked with. It was great fun to visit with him about the book, so let's turn to the interview. Scott, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me on the program.
2: Thank you, Bruce. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak more about my book.
1: So I'll tell listeners that Scott is on the faculty of the Sociology Department at the University of California, Riverside. And in addition to his book, Black Men Can't Shoot, he has written several articles and essays on different aspects of sports in contemporary society, so I'll start by asking you, Scott, uh, can you explain to us your background in sports and your background in sociology and how you brought those interests together
2: uh, absolutely I, I I think it's a fairly common story for academics who end up studying sport, and you know it's the typical I, I used to be an athlete, and at some point, I realized that I wasn't going to go so far. I wasn't going to become a professional, so I started to, you know, to look at other things that I could do with sports. And so, with family help and, and really just kind of thinking about what my future might be, I decided that I would hang up the, the the hoop shoes and and go ahead and just go to school. And so, rather than going away and and trying to pursue that hoop dream, I just went to school. Um, I ended up I was a DJ through high school, so I DJed my way through uh college paying for tuition and housing and books and whatnot. And then uh after college with my my head really focused on going to graduate school in international affairs, uh, I moved to Washington D C and worked on the hill for the Congressional Black Caucus for just a little bit and then realized I really didn't like the the workings of government after sitting up close. And so I uh moved back home I got married to my high school sweetheart, and at a graduation at UC Davis, I got to hear Professor Harry Edwards, who was a professor at Cal when I was there, and I would visit his classes. Uh, But his classes were always so packed. Um, If you were a lower division student or a a junior student in the first or second years, you couldn't get into the courses. And so I would just go and listen, um, hear him. Uh, and then, getting this chance to, to hear him be the keynote at UC Davis, I was really struck by how what he was about, social justice, um, and looking at issues of race and inequality in sport, how that really just spoke to me. Um, that was something that I was, I felt I could do for the rest of my life, uh, and so I, I asked him about his process, how did he get to his position, um, what kind of things should I be doing, and really he, he helped map out the plan of, you know, go ahead and get your Ph.D., and then look to, uh, you know, be an academic, and on the side you have a, a job as a sports sociologist, and so um, here I am, uh, have not broken to the side of being on a, a, an actual playing field, a professional playing field. I do help consult some of uh, the college programs at my school uh, when I have a chance, and I've continued to coach basketball at the high school level, where I get to uh, use some kind of some social psychology and and really think about strategies of doing and and helping young men to reach their full potential. Uh, but that's really the story.
0: Okay.
1: So then, how did you come to write this particular book? Can you can you explain the research project? you pursued that that led to black men can't shoot
2: yeah so in my first year very first semester at the university of Pennsylvania I took a class on ethnography um, systematic study of culture through qualitative research methods and uh, our professor Elijah Anderson told us to go find a street corner um, go find a, a place like a bar and really try to take it in, become an observing participant and, and get on the inside and learn their uh, local knowledge and culture and then report back. And so I was, uh, knowing that I was interested in sports, I asked the question, what makes Philadelphia a basketball city? And so that's where it all started, really trying to, to go out and, and speak to different members of the community. Uh, I would stop people on the street um, while I was riding a train. And asked them about you know Philadelphia's basketball history, and you know as odd as that is, I I was immediately hit with the problem of this question because I had people respond that it was a football city, or that it was a hockey mm-hmm. city, or that it was a baseball city, and so then I realized well I need to speak to basketball people and playing in the gyms uh, at most just as at most colleges you play in, in gyms and you get folks from the neighborhood who, you know, see this as a good place to play, where it's competitive, playing uh, against a diverse group of people, uh, I started to speak to some of the local guys who would come to the gym, and then I also visited some of the parks in West Philadelphia, and I would ask the question there, and it was in that, uh, you know, in that undertaking that I got better answers about basketball, and so I was directed to a league by several people. And so I called the league's office, and they told me that they had a historian, which really sounded odd Mm -hmm. (laughs) and special. But I I sat with the historian on three or four separate occasions for an hour or two hours, and we just talked about uh, basketball, Philadelphia's basketball history, the history of uh, Jews in basketball in Philadelphia, starting with the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association, and then how that moved into Blacks being brought into to basketball and so I really got that rich history early on and then in the last meeting with this uh, historian who was a former sports journalist he gave me a list of about 20 names and he said these are some old guys in the league you know a few of them are the founding fathers of the league and you call them up and I'm sure that they would love to help you and I called about 20 of these guys, but out of the 20 folks that I called, I only received one call back, and that began the journey. So that person, uh, who in the book is Chuck Green, uh, you know, I use all pseudonyms, but Chuck Green called me back. We had an initial conversation of about an hour to an hour and a half, and then he said, you know, come visit me, and I'll take you out, show you Philadelphia, and tell you everything you need to know. And that's how it all started. Yeah.
1: So then you started working with Chuck as an assistant coach. And how long were you working with him?
2: So I've, I worked with him for four years. So that starting in that fall, we talked. Um, he showed me Philadelphia. And by January, he had invited me to coach, help him coach. And our first league started, the play started in, in February. And then we would do a league from February through, I guess it was February through April, and then we would start practicing towards the end of that for our next league. So we would We would. We had a sixth, seventh, and eighth grade team that played in the winter, and then for the summer we had eighth, we had ninth and tenth grade teams and an eleventh and twelfth grade teams.
1: So Chuck is an important character or, or subject in your book, a subject of your research. Uh, but then the other two uh, key people. Are two players, and they were with you throughout the four years you were coaching, correct? Jermaine and Ray.
2: Well, so they were actually with me for those three years. So I coached for more than four in terms of. I still go back each summer. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's in my blood now. Um, and people, when they see me, because it's a summer league thing, they don't. Many folks don't know that I I'm not living there. They just see me in the summertime. Okay. You know, and they say, oh. You know, and, and so sometimes I've had a conversation with one guy where he said, hey, you know, how you been? I, I didn't see you earlier in the league. And I said, well, you know, I don't live here. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> and I said, well, you remember I, I was doing research. I actually got a job. I live in California and lived in California for a couple of years. And he's like, I thought you were a Philly guy. <laughs> and so, you know, you get in well enough, and again, that's the goal to become a part, uh, an observing participant. You want to be in well enough that people – don't realize that think, you know, they've forgotten that you're an outsider. You want to be an insider. And so, yeah, I, I, I've had the opportunity of being continuously involved, and Jermaine and Ray came in on that second year of my research. And since then, um, I've maintained a very strong relationship with Jermaine. With Ray, he's moved around, and that's actually a mark of his status. So the higher status players, mm-hmm. um, end up with many more mentors, many more supports, and therefore they don't rely as much on one or two people. I mean, mm-hmm. they may have their close group, but they have a, 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 a range of people that they rely upon. And they get, you know, the, these people are useful in different ways. So people who may give them a little bit of money because uh, the kids often are coming from uh, real poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they help them with that, um, and they range from drug dealers to uh, school uh, school teachers to guys who uh, you know, have, have just working-class jobs but go to the playgrounds every single Saturday. They still go there and they play with their buddies, so it's kind of just you know, their recreational thing. But as these young men start to develop and start to play with the older guys, these old guys who in Philadelphia we call old heads, they take on these younger guys. Mm-hmm. And so they develop these, these different relationships and get close to people. And the more promise that they show, the more that people are willing to invest in them. because mm-hmm. They see them as really having this potential for getting beyond and outside the ghetto. And uh, that was Ray's case. And so while he and I were close initially, we were actually closer then I was uh, in my relationship with Jermaine, uh, he quickly um, became a city player, you know, mm-hmm. known around the city, mm-hmm. and therefore really grew beyond needing a stranger like me who wasn't in the community every single day, didn't live in a neighborhood, who wasn't giving him money, um, who couldn't attend all of his high school games. So some mm-hmm. of his old heads would take off work and go to every single game in the city that he played, and so you can imagine the kind of closeness that that they developed with him. And Jermaine, on the other hand, has a lower status player, and you know he looked to me one because uh, I was just someone who gave him attention and treated him as though he was a star guy, you know, and, and investing in him and and treating him as special. He really was. He lacked that, and he and he thirsted for that, and so. Yeah, you know, he he talks in the book. I I highlight how he talks about not having as many old heads mm-hmm. and not being therefore not uh, having the same kind of things that that Ray and other kids did who were more well known than he was. But Jermaine is someone that I speak to when we're kind of in a lull. So when he's been when he's been in the midst of college, and it's once a month or so, and then when it's summertime or you know or other kind of key periods where he needs
1: me, then it could be as much as every week. Huh. Okay. All right, well, we'll talk about all these things okay. <laughs> over the course of the interview, but I want to go back to, in starting out with the book, we should probably, uh, or I should probably ask you about the title, Black Men okay. Can't Shoot, which is clearly a take on that classic of early 1990s cinema, White Men Can't Jump. So what what is the message that you're uh, that you're trying to get across with the title of your book?
2: So, so the message is, you know, when you watch White Men Can't Can't Jump, the thought was that Woody Harrelson's character was was a great basketball player because he was an overachiever because he worked hard, but he lacked the athletic ability, mm-hmm. um, which Wesley Snipes' character had naturally. He was God-given, right? And mm-hmm. and it's really along along racial lines. Black guys are athletic, and mm-hmm. so they can jump and they can do some of these things. They don't have to work as hard. Whereas the white guys have to work harder in order to to match the kind of level of, of skill or to play as well. And what I realized in following these young men was all of the work that they were putting in, not simply on the court, but in terms of mental and emotional energy. So the figuring out what it was going to take to make a team, what it was going to take to become a starter. Mm -hmm. what it was going to take to get to a travel ball team. Um, And then also, when the opportunities weren't there, so you could make a team, but the coach doesn't play you. Well, how do you manage that? And how do you figure your way into a better situation? So these kids are really learning. They're putting in so much energy to figure out the rules of the game, like this game of mobility and basketball, and then applying themselves and strategizing how do I get from point A to point B? And so that was really the point to highlight that when we, when we have these kind of statements of natural ability or God given ability, particularly as it pertains to race, what we're essentially doing is taking out the work ethic Mm -hmm. where we're not giving these kids the full credit for the emotional and intellectual energy that they put into this and trying to figure it out and, Following a plan and getting to you know the the places that they want to
1: get to. Yeah, and looking specifically at their their ability as players or how they developed as players, uh, Jermaine and Ray both become real students of the game. You describe them analyzing film of NBA players. Uh, they work diligently on their skills. By the time they got into high school, you say that that basketball was their was their job.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it was amazing to see, coming from the West Coast, but it's not that kids on the West Coast don't do similar things, but when you add that you've got to move the snow around before you can play, <laughs> <laughs> you really get a, a sense of their passion and their commitment. Uh, seeing these kids, hearing of them, seeing and hearing of them practicing before school, playing at lunchtime leaving school and going right to the playground to play some more. I mean, you know, food even, eating, seemed to be something that was pushed to the back burner. When we think of young boys, you know, we think of how much they eat. I've got a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old who's eating me out, you know, they're both eating me out of house <laughs> and home. And these kids, you know, they'll catch, a, you, know, a slice, a, you know, a slice of pizza or, or, or a steak or something on the way, a steak on the way, but, you know, they are really hustling to all these different games, and they are spending a lot of time looking for workouts and places uh, and people to help them improve. Now, of course, the, the downside is that there are hoop entrepreneurs who sell them on, this is what you need to get there. Mm-hmm. And these people don't often know, know what they're talking about. They're not, it's, you know, it's not, some do. Some have played college. And you don't have to have played college for to, those skills but they're not all selling a good product, but these kids are so enthusiastic and determined to make it that they spend a lot of time going to and from, there's all this gossip and rumor about where people are giving workouts, where they're giving workouts in gyms, whether the workouts are NBA workouts or, you know, and, and the level and quality of these workouts, and so they really are about this craft of becoming a basketball player. Sadly, the older they get, often the less energy they devote to skill and particular kind of, you know, doing things over and over and getting better. And the more the shift becomes about playing games. And it's not simply them. It's the pressure of AAU basketball and getting known, being seen by these gatekeepers and influential persons, scouts and recruiters and that happens at games that happens happens in tournament. That doesn't happen on the practice field. And so kids become more and more invested in I just have to get to a game. Yeah. You know, I've got to perform.
1: Okay. So I want to ask about I want to ask about this process of getting known and this is this is a major theme throughout throughout the book. Uh, what right. is it what does it mean to get known in South Philly basketball?
2: So in South Philly basketball it, it's really about managing Multiple careers, and the careers are, are pretty much a street ball or playground career, which is very local. It starts with the local park that may be two, three blocks away. Learning the, you know, the old heads, the older guys who get there, getting invited or being allowed to play with them because you've shown some promise, and then it's the ranks. So it's the ranking of younger guys, and so you're competing fairly early on with this cohort of guys your age because these older guys are giving you rewards and praise when they see you do something, right? And there's the oohs and the ahs and taking you aside. And so that's the local level. Older guys looking at these younger guys, you know, mentoring them in different ways, and the younger guys, this cohort competing with one another for status and for praise. Now you can imagine how that then plays itself out in the immediate public school or community school system so that a kid who has a <clears throat> excuse me, who has status and reputation at the playground, when they go to the local school, the kids are aware of who's, are, who's good, who has the status, who's been given praise. And so the team is almost already set. Now, depending on the catchment area for that local school, if you've got a few different neighborhoods, then, it requires that the kids are playing in not just that one local park, but playing in maybe the church league or a police athletic league where they get to play a few local parks around so that the status is getting itself worked out as well. So that a kid can be the best at their local playground, but be second or third when you add three or four surrounding playgrounds in the same community. And when they get to these schools, the kids, we talk about it in sociology as expectation status, so that when people read what's, you know, they come into a setting, a small group, and they immediately start to take in who has what status position. And that guides the interaction. And so as these kids have heard about other kids, as they play, it starts to inform and line them up in their rankings. And so that, you get the playground to the school, well, as the schools get higher, you know, as the kids get higher and higher in age, the number of kids that they're going to come across with these different levels of status gets bigger. Public, you know, public high schools often are uh, taking in, are often taking in more kids, have a wider catchment area, and so they're working it out there. And then you add the even more. Formal, and, it, and I don't mean formal just in terms of that the fact that there's rules, officials, and record-keeping like you have um, at high schools, but you don't have a playground. I mean the formal link to higher mobility, which happens through travel ball. Mm-hmm. And so a kid is looking to have a reputation at the local level, just their playground, right around their, their block. Then at the neighborhood level, level which gets them more status and plays itself out at the, at, the, at the school, when you get to the high school, you're dealing with even more kids, so you may have to build and campaign even more so, so that at each level, there's a process of getting known, gaining status from your peers, and it's not something that you can give yourself. That's the key thing. Mm-hmm. It's about how others see you, how they talk about you and praise you, and then it's about the deference the deference that actually happens on the court, so that what you know when you see basketball, you know, when you're someone who looks just beyond the stats, is that a Kobe Bryant is a star player. When you see all of the shots that he takes, he's a star player because his teammates defer to him and make sure that he gets to take the majority of the shots. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, to a fan or someone who doesn't really pay close attention, even though this is somewhat obvious, they just may not be thinking about it. We just say, oh, he scores more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. But star players generally take more shots and actually don't shoot that higher percentage when you compare them with other players because they're taking too many shots. They're Mm -hmm. taking higher risk shots. So the way that a player is a star is by deference from others. And so getting known is, Building this status and reputation by playing, having the networks of people who praise you and who campaign for you, recommend you to others and say, this kid is good, you need to play him. Uh, having your
0: peers
2: defer to you, which gives you the space and the opportunity to take more shots and to actually showcase your ability. And that happens, and then we have the AU travel ball circuit so that as these kids are playing on these teams, what they are doing at the same time is essentially auditioning Mm -hmm. and making cases, making a case for being put on other teams. Mm -hmm. So that the better that they perform, the more that people talk about them, the more that the more opportunities they're going to have to play on other teams where people say, I want you because I heard that you're great. I heard that you're good. And then, Travel ball teams are often made up exclusively based on recommendation or firsthand observation. So if a kid is recommended by a person who is influential, a former star player, um, or a coach that has a, 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 a name recognition, then an AAU, a travel ball coach, will say, I want you on my team. Sometimes it's sight unseen. And other kids who will go and try out because they heard about it like a Jermaine early on, we're told, you're not ready yet. So these kids are engaged in the local, in the community level, in the citywide level, and then ultimately by playing at this travel ball, they're looking at getting to regional and national levels. And so depending on how much status they gain, how many people are talking, who has seen them in terms of scouts and recruiters, they may have to work at every level to make their
1: name known. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, as you were explaining, I'm thinking in terms of a diagram. And so I'm thinking in terms of, of overlapping overlapping circles that you have, getting known as as bringing social status, social capital within your school, within the community, uh, getting known, bringing status within your team, as you talked about, that your teammates yep, defer to you. Absolutely. And then this this perhaps last stage is getting known to uh, to the coaches of AEU teams, getting known to recruiters, getting known to scouts, and so forth. Yes. And and uh, actually, in in reading the book, I I was thinking more of getting known in this in this last phase. That that the process of getting known is about getting discovered by scouts and by recruiters. And and so I was as I was reading, I was thinking of the uh, the parallels between. You know, basketball in South Philly and sports I'm familiar with. So I grew up in Minnesota. The sport there is hockey. Uh, The community I live in now, uh, the youth sports are soccer, baseball, at the high school level, football. And so, you know, I was wondering what parallels are there in this process of getting known in inner city basketball and getting known in these other sports where you have you know, mainly white players being involved. Right. It, it, have, have you done any work on that or reading on that?
2: I haven't done it specifically. What I know in terms of the process, and so, you know, I'll pay attention to to news stories where they talk about someone um, as a known player at mm-hmm. a high school level. And so here here's where the parallels are. So the parallels are the same at that level which you talk about, the highest level when it's about scouts and recruiters. How mm-hmm. do these kids get seen? Um, that's an important phase because you can't move to that level without scouts and recruiters who rank players at regional and national levels, without them ranking you, giving you some kind of praise, and bringing it to the attention of coaches. And so in all of these sports, there has to be this weeding out process that is about not just playing in public or playground. When I say public, I'm not talking about like, just in Playground Recreation League. Mm -hmm. It has to be about playing in some of these more formal spaces, and what coaches are depending upon is in these more formal spaces at high schools, but more importantly now in travel ball, what they're depending on is there's going to be all of this high level of talent in this space. And so those are the real proving grounds. A kid can score 50 points in a game in, in high school, and that's nice, and that's impressive. But we want to know how they're going to perform against a, a level playing field, against a high-level of competition where I can, you know, one, go and see them play because it's all put in a space, a tournament in Vegas, a tournament in Orlando, right, In some kind of space like that. Because traveling to each place, not only is it that it's how, you know, how could you get to every game? but it's not Mm cost-effective. And so this weeding out process that is happening at these youth sports helps the institutional level, the colleges, to get to see these kids against very good competition and often in in a much smaller number of spaces. So rather than going to each city, you see them in these major tournaments. And so that's where there's a lot of parallels. This is where college coaches recruit in general but what you don't see as much is this very local community kind of stuff in Mm -hmm. these other sports so i would imagine in in sports where it requires more money Mm -hmm. um, where there's higher risk of injury and physical kind of play you know you just don't play that many games so you can't have football and playground football whatever that that parallel equivalent would be because it's too dangerous right so you don't have club football you have all-star games right you might play an additional one or two maybe three games after your season but you can't play all year round like you can for basketball and I imagine hockey I think I know that in hockey they do have some club teams um and again that's often about resources and these maybe in Minnesota and you'd have to answer there are YMCA rec leagues for hockey and it's just as popular and as uh kind of every day as it is in basketball. And is that the case with
1: hockey? No, no, that's not the case. And actually, that was something that I was going to ask in reading the book is, uh, you know, these guys are going from team to team, and they're going to tournaments, and Jermaine goes to Italy. And, right. uh, you know, and I was thinking, who pays for this? Because in the in the other sports I'm familiar with, you know, the players that move up to the elite levels and play in the national tournaments, they're the ones who's, you know, whose parents put out a lot of cash for them to be on these teams and you know in the case of jermaine and ray um they, their families didn't have the cash for that
2: and that's where you, we get back to kind of the the sports machine and, and in particular when we talk about race and the cash sports. so that you know when you look at a volleyball a hockey you have one country club sport and then you have other more middle-class or at least expense heavy sports mm-hmm. and so the kids, um, because basketball is one such a huge money maker, because it's been part of the pillar for sports apparel companies, right? To invest in basketball and football, this is where their major endorsers come later. That you know, they we, the the sports apparel companies get behind the Kobe Bryant's as as. As spokespersons rather than, and and several basketball players and football players rather than having so many hockey players as their spokespersons. But that's the funding for youth basketball, Mm -hmm. right? It's the Nikes, the, the Reeboks, and the Adidas. They've been funding this for, you know, since the 70s. They've been funding inner city sports. Now, the hoop entrepreneurs, guys who get into coaching, and not just coaching because of kids, but also see this as a business, as a job opportunity. These coaches um, are making money out of it, and what they do is they'll start with kids as young as six or seven, and they often have a a payment situation where it is, you know, we make the the poor the excuse me the youngest kids start paying, and they pay early, and the thought is that when they get to high school they won't pay, so that younger kids pay for older kids. Mm -hmm. The older kids bring more prestige because they're going to bigger tournaments, more tournaments, and if they win, then all of that is good for the younger guys who can see themselves as being the next kids in the turnstile, right, filling those places. And so they're basically buying into that future promise. Um, But when the kids are mostly poor, they can't charge a huge amount but they'll go and get a few middle-class kids, um, and we call them scholarship kids. Mm -hmm. You go and you get a couple of kids who you know are not good players, but who want to play, and you'll take as much money from them as you can Mm -hmm. to fund other kids. And then you're also looking for um, funding from the apparel companies. So uh, the apparel companies have pulled a little bit. they definitely pulled... Well, not a little bit. It's actually more than that. they definitely pulled back from sponsoring um a lot of teams as many teams as they used to mm-hmm. they now are kind of only invested in sponsoring the elite team they no longer pay travel ball coaches on salary they used some travel ball coaches used to have salaries um this was their job and so they have pulled out of it because of all of the flack that they've caught but that's those are the funders as well as professional athletes who come through the system so when an athlete makes it to the pros they often set up a foundation. The foundation then becomes the uh, parent for the travel ball team, and the professional athlete gives their money. So in our league, as I talked about, there's a, an, an Aaron McKee team, a Rasheed Wallace team, there's an Eddie Jones team. So several of these Philly guys have their foundations sponsoring travel ball teams. And so they also can not only pay with their own checkbooks, But the apparel company that they are connected to also often become the source
1: for that team. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to stick with this, and this gets away from the book, but I'm interested in this. So do you think is basketball, because of the sponsorship from the apparel companies and from NBA players, is it somewhat more open in that – is it more of a meritocracy in that talented kids who work hard – are going to get a chance as opposed to, for instance, baseball or youth soccer where you can have a talented kid, uh, a kid who wants to work hard, but if that kid's family doesn't have the money, they're not going to be playing on the elite travel teams. You know, they're not going to be going to the, to the regional or national tryouts.
2: Well, so I would argue that it's, it's open in terms of class. So it's not based on class at all. Um, It doesn't matter what class you come from. And in some ways, of course, the more middle class, upper class you are, the more that you're fighting against stereotypes of being pampered, spoiled, soft, automatically. Because the thought is that the best basketball players are inner city players because they come from tough backgrounds, come from these playground settings where they're playing against men at early ages. And not only is it that they're playing against men, but they're playing against men who have something at stake these men are still excited and still living out a status reputation so that they're not going to just be playing with kids and saying, Hey, I'm all about helping a kid, you know, or this is, you know, I I grew up in a middle-class setting where I played with my uncles on Sunday mornings and we were playing with a bunch of black male uh, professionals, you know, accountants and doctors and lawyers. And so while it was competitive, I didn't have to worry about someone really giving me an elbow or mm-hmm. so on. Well, in South Philly on the playground, they're playing against working-class men who made their names by being high school players or didn't and are trying to make their name as playground legends because it didn't work out in high school or they couldn't go to college. And so there's more at stake there. So, so there's, there's that going. But where it's not open is that it's still about campaigning for status. It's still political. And that's what Jermaine's story is all about. It's showing that while you can work hard and have some ability, this is heavily based on impression management, right, so that you need for people to vouch for you, to say that you are deserving of these higher opportunities. And so if you get into a situation with a coach. You don't like the coach. The coach didn't play you. You have some kind of falling out. Your mother or father doesn't like the coach, thinks that, that the coach shouldn't have pulled you out or should have played you more, and they raise a stick with the coach. The coach then has a lot of power, depending on, you know, particularly I'm thinking of high school coaches at the, at the school, has a lot of power in saying this kid is not ready. To play at that next level, mm-hmm. this kid is not good enough, mm-hmm. right? They can talk about it in terms of meritocracy and effectively keep you out of that, you know, that that system to move up and through the ranks. And so that happened with Jermaine, but he was able to play through it because he was managing multiple careers. So while his high school career, you know, at this Catholic school, did not play out as well as he had liked. Um, he was able by playing to other teams like our team in the sunny in the, in the summer league and by playing with travel ball teams he was seen and was given opportunities to play at higher level travel ball teams which ultimately got him to uh, you know playing in in the, that that high school league after you know after his, his Catholic school so being able to go and 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 play with his with additional programs and playing outside of that high school, having those multiple careers is what, was, is what gave him the opportunity to work around, work outside of a negative evaluation by his high school coach. And so the politics are very much in effect. And so many kids will look at it and tell you that it's unfair, mm-hmm. that it becomes about who you know, that it becomes about, you know, Coaches at the travel ball and even in the summer league are playing their favorite. And so there's those kind of politics. And that's why they jump ship and find other teams. So it's, it's open in terms of class because class, when it works itself in basketball, is actually not like what we generally see in the rest of society. The poorest folks are seen as having uh, the, best, the greatest tenacity and enthusiasm and desire and this is actually what, you know, started or initiated my, uh, another paper that I wrote, The, the Preferred Worker. Mm-hmm. The thought is that when you look at the poorest people, they are often exploited and taken advantage of because they don't have the recourse of, of, of legal action or money or parents with influence, you know, people who can provide sanctions when coaches don't do well. You have a lot of money and the high school coach doesn't play your child, depending on your status in that community as well, you could ask for that coach to be fired.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
2: you could definitely push for your kid to get more playing time. Well, the poorest kids don't often have that. Now, where they do is where you know, maybe their, uh, their old heads or their father or an uncle is a drug dealer who is dangerous. <laughs> and you could threaten somebody physically, and I've actually seen that happen at the travel ball level where, you know, a kid, was, his family is, was in the drug game. And so when he wasn't played, I, was, I spoke to the travel ball coach after he was approached by this kid's two uncles who had flown all the way across the country from Philadelphia to Las Vegas because their nephew said that the coach was tripping, that the coach was not playing him mm-hmm. as much as he should have been played. And so they went to this coach and said, you better play my nephew. Hmm. Now the coach, the coach said to me, I'm not going to do it. But when I went to the game that afternoon, he played the kid <laughs> the whole game. <laughs> so you know, there, there is some influence that they can have, but there's less of that when we're talking about a high school. You can, you can influence another community guy mm-hmm. who's doing a travel ball team, but for those same guys to go to the Catholic high school, there could be the, the repercussions of the law being brought in. So, mm-hmm. you know, at this Catholic high school, you had a middle-class white male as the coach. You have this Catholic high school of, of reputation. Well, they can, they can go to the law and say, we've been threatened, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, it plays itself out differently. It's not so much about class exclusion. It's much more about politics and who you know, network.
1: So talking about the uncles who were involved in in drug deals threatening the coach and th- this uh, this is another major theme throughout the book is uh, you write about basketball for these these boys and these young men basketball as an alternative to a life of dealing to the an alternative to to slug life as it was called in South Philly a life on the corner yeah. and yeah. Uh, and the sense I got from the book is that there are basically two life options for these young black men in South Philly: basketball or the corner. And I was wondering, were there in sports were there other options, say baseball or football or
0: track?
2: Yeah, well, well, let me let me first say that two. You're right that those are really the, the extremes.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, with
2: it, of course, there's a little bit on entertainment. right? can you yep. become a rapper? Can you become a singer? And then, you know, kids of who show extraordinary ability in the classroom, who are still, you know, who whose ability and skills warrant scholarships, they can gain recognition and, you know, because it's really all about recognition. It's so about can those getting known in one way or the other? So can I so, jump in?
1: So can a kid yeah. who's who's smart, who's you know really good in school, uh, can he get known for that and have the same kind of 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 you know, bubble of protection around him as he moves in the neighborhood?
2: He absolutely can. Where it's often limited is, I would argue that the that the burden of, of I, I, I guess I'll say burden of recognition is much higher. So just getting good grades, you can get the very local guy next door, drug dealer on the corner, who hears about a kid's, hears that the kid does well in school and he gives the kid a few dollars for getting good grades and says keep it up mm-hmm. you can get that and that's that's going to be low level of protection but you know, if they like the kid, the kids are nice they know the family they'll stand by the kids but it's not the same investment and respect and possible recognition that an athlete would get mm-hmm. so a kid like that would get just a few you know here buy yourself something you know stay good A basketball, no one is going to follow that kid to the spelling bee, right? They're not going (laughs) to follow that kid to a debate competition. None of that is going to happen. But when we're talking about an athlete, these men will drive the kid to New Jersey, Atlantic City for a tournament, right? They'll take off work, as I spoke of earlier. There's a much greater investment because the perceived payoff and the status associated with being an athlete is so much higher. The only way that a kid doing well in school can get to that similar level, and there was one case that I, that I can recall, is when a kid, this kid, was not only seen as smart in their school, they were written about in the city's newspaper. and went, I wanna say they traveled to England for some kind of paper competition. And so one of my kids talked about this same kid was playing basketball, but they said to me, hey Scott, you see that kid, he's super smart, Mm -hmm. right? He's like Urkel, right? He's like the (laughs) smart guy, right? And so it's that kind of level and getting the same kind of pub or ink as we talk about getting written up in the newspaper. A kid would need to get to that kind of level to get a similar level of respect, right? For a kid who, you know, a basketball player who may just have their name in the box score, but score a lot of points, but never get a an article written about them, they would be at an equivalent level. Mm-hmm. That kid, you know, the basketball player may never leave South Philly, may never go to college, but will be known for, you know, this could be their permanent identity, social identity, as they were a star at, Mm-hmm. This high school, right. Whereas a smart kid uh, who would probably, hopefully, leave the community and be gone forever, right, because it's less likely that if you're up to be mobile, you're going to come back and live in South Philly, right. So they're they're actually often forgotten because they leave, they don't come back. Whereas athletes often still are negotiating; they're still coming back. They'll even if they make it well in college, they're not getting paid to where they can lift their family out. If they make it in the pros, their friends still generally, ha- you know, maybe one or two friends can go hang out with them, but it's most of their friends are still going to be right there in the community. So there's still a pool and a back and forth. There's still a presence there. Now, when it comes to, uh, you know, your question of, you know, are there other ways, um, right? You were asking, yeah, yeah. are there other ways in terms of baseball or other sports Football, definitely. So one of the kids I coached ended up going and playing at Notre Dame mm-hmm. um, for football. So he was a f- fantastic football player. In uh, f- Philadelphia, it has, you know, big-time baseball with the Phillies, big-time football with the Eagles, right? And there's history there. We're big-time in hockey. Um, of course, there's, there isn't much overlap, if any, in basketball players and hockey players. <laughs> so, so I don't know any of those stories. But I do know of very good football players. Marvin Harrison, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. future Hall of who played for the Indianapolis coach played in our same summer league. Um, and so you know of football players who played basketball, sometimes were as good. You know, of course, the accounts of a Randy Moss being an excellent basketball player and playing with Jason Williams' white chocolate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know that there are those overlaps, and that can happen in football. Baseball... I know in Philadelphia that you know Chuck used to be. He was a baseball player. Still loves baseball, but baseball really it, it doesn't have the same cachet. There are there are a few parks. I can think of one park that was really kind of impressive, and it was it was in the same playground rec center in which we practiced, and it had you know sponsorships on the walls, uh, and so it it was and it was a very well maintained baseball field it was not all black though so Mm -hmm. even though it was in the heart of south philly and in a a black community it was more of a mixed setting so when you're talking about these young black men they are focused on basketball football to a a lesser extent and boxing is huge in in philadelphia okay it still is so yeah it's still it's still huge now again the numbers are not going to be there but it is still it is still something that's big. So many of the rec centers had boxing. It was something that was a little bit more invisible. The doors were often closed, and they needed to be because the stench was terrible, <laughs> as you can imagine. But uh, but boxing was still something that kids did. Often it was you know one of those early sports. So a kid like a Jermaine and Ray, early on would you know maybe they do a little bit of soccer, depending on their neighborhood if it if was soccer offered but they would definitely do football, they would do basketball, um, and many of them did boxing, mm-hmm. right? But boxing, once, once most of these kids got hit, they decided they didn't want to do boxing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you had to be that kind of kid who liked, you know, who was really aggressive and liked that. And in baseball, it was a lot like soccer. You know, they might play for a season or two and can yeah. recall being good, but they really were focused on football and basketball, And as they got higher
1: and higher, of course, they began to specialize. Okay, okay. So then as they get higher and higher and going back to basketball, something you mentioned at the start of the book that the players you worked with and their parents, they were aware of the improbability of their making it to the NBA. And and if you can, I'd like you to expand on that. So what did these players see as their aim in sticking with basketball? And, and how okay. did they talk about their goals as players? What did they want to accomplish as players?
2: So the the interesting thing is the kids, while they look up to pro players, mm-hmm. they often have more admiration and respect for the older guys, the old heads at the playground. They see these guys as impressive. So Ray said about, about Marcus, if I could just be... Marcus, I'd be happy, right? If I could just have that kind of respect from the local community and from these young bulls, as we say, from the younger boys, he talked about us being happy. Um, uh, Many of these kids who come to us because we were uh, an elite, prominent league for the most part, they're coming through fathers, mothers, and uncles, people that they, you know, who have been talking about our summer league for a long time. It's, a, it's an honor for most kids just to be in this league because it's exclusive. There's going to be generally one team from each area of the city and then a few foundation teams. And so they are, some, they are fairly exclusive and elite. And so you know, getting to that point of getting recognition and being able to say, you know, wearing the clothes, wearing T-shirts and jerseys from other leagues, that is a reward. And so they're looking at that status and saying, hey, you know, this helps me to get girls. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, people see me as someone who's important. People may, you know, when they, when they see me on the street, they'll stop and ask me how my game went. Um, they see that, and that is huge. Now, it doesn't mean that, of course, if they, if they didn't have the op- if they had the opportunity to go to college or the pros, that they wouldn't want it. They would. But they realize, right, mm-hmm. that that this is a process and that it, they first need to make their names at these local and, and lower levels. And so when your father was a big-time high school, high school basketball player, that's what you hope to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the dream, it doesn't, it doesn't take away the fact that there's a dream, but they recognize that that's not as likely and that it is good enough, and it's not just good enough, it's, it's fantastic to have that local status, Mm -hmm. that that local status matters. And when they see these old heads with that local status, that's what they're immediately after, you know, Mm I, and that's their first kind of measuring stick, right? When I know that they're, when they're talking about me, like they talk about this person, then I know that I'm, I'm known, you know, then I have some pride about me. So That's where, that's where most of that comes from. And then you have, you know, the parents who, whose fathers in particular were not good, right? So they're putting their kid into it because they go, well, this is another opportunity for, for you to get better. Because when, when I go and play on the weekends at the playground, I want you, I want to play with you and have some pride. So they're looking at the opportunity for learning. You know, they want their kid, it's, it's, an, it's a part of their cultural repertoire. Mm-hmm. They want their kid to be able to go on the court and not suck, right? <laughs> so it's a lot like my chapter on can't look poor. It's like you don't have to be the star, but you don't want to suck. You don't want to be that scrub. So I want you to get as much basketball as possible because this is what men do, right? We talk mm-hmm. about gender as a practice. This is what men do in South Philadelphia. They play ball. And so you got to be able to at least show some kind of skill. You don't have to be the best, but you got to show some kind of skill.
1: So we're almost out of time, Scott. And uh, I want to go back to the start of the interview and the start of the book. And in the book, you talk about your own basketball career. And you make a statement there that, in my view, connects with with the themes you unfold throughout the rest of the book. You wrote that your basketball career came to an end because you, quote, didn't know how to become a star player.
0: Yeah.
1: So I want to ask you, in the process of researching and writing this book, what what wisdom did you gain in in terms of looking back at your basketball career about what you should and should not have done as a basketball player?
2: That's a great question. Great question. Well, so you know, my my uh, my professor Elijah Anderson talks about the importance. Uh, well, not just the importance. He talks about research being about one's own story. That essentially, what we're working out when we do our research is we're working out our own troubles, mm-hmm. our own you know struggles that we've had in life. And so it is very much you know this research in focusing in on the career. You know, as you pointed out, was really about saying you know how could this have helped me, right? And mm-hmm. and And why didn't it work out for me? That's why I I chose a career study to focus on because, you know, the data is, is enormous, but to focus is, you know, requires, you know, some kind of attention and desire to take a certain path. And so I think really at the end of the day, I I struggled partly because I moved into, I I lived overseas right before high school. And so to come into basketball at high school, I didn't realize that I had already missed this fundamental period of getting on a certain trajectory and path. Mm-hmm. I had no status, no recognition coming in. Whereas, uh, I, so I was away from fourth to eighth grade overseas. And one of my oldest friends, two of my oldest friends, ended up being star players. One of them was Jason Kidd, who you know, I grew up with. We played on select soccer teams. Through fourth grade, and then I move away, come back for high school, and he was a burgeoning star. Outside the games, people were selling T-shirts with iron-on pictures of Jason Kidd, hmm. and he was signing the T-shirts.
0: Hmm.
2: Right, he was already a nationally known player. You know that doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. I come in in ninth grade, and nobody knows me. I've not played any in, in any eighth grade tournaments in play, in the you know the the local eighth grade leagues. All of that stuff was preparation when you look at Jermaine and Ray. They had been playing locally on the playground, had already been mentored. People were talking about them at least, excuse me, in their immediate neighborhood. And so that got them a position at their high school, right? So going back to what I was talking about before, all of that was setting the stage. I didn't have any of that. And so that meant that my process, I had a a steeper climb to gaining recognition and status. So, you know, I learned, if I look back at it, I should have been more concerned about getting the travel ball teams, proving myself there, continuing to dominate and and showcase myself so that the college recruits would stay, you know, I would have stayed on their radar. They would have stayed looking at me Mm -hmm. and considering me for that next level.
1: So the last question, I'll, I'll ask you: What are you working on now?
2: So I'm actually taking on. You touched on it at the very beginning. Chuck was a you know was a key figure in the book, and I had a decision, and you know, and making the choice to to make it a career study and focus on Jermaine and Ray, I also made a decision to downplay Chuck mm-hmm. um, because I knew that one being so close to him and knowing so much. I could give a lot of information, but that it would distract Mm -hmm. from the story of this mobility of kids getting known and learning what it took to go from being a good player to a great player. So I knew that, you know, based on what was on the chopping floor that I had a second book and that it was going to be about coaching. And Mm so that's what this second book is. The second book is really looking at Chuck and it's focusing on uh the relationship that he and I developed with players and how we had to deal with the different situations uh and of and, uh, parents mm-hmm. parents and us not meshing over expectations for their kids. So, you know, a parent who thinks their kid should be playing more, who wants their kid to have more exposure. Um and it and coaching, continuing to coach here in California, I found that we encounter the same experiences when we're talking about players and their parents and their expectations for playing time and their idea of potential. And so it's kind of a universal that when you talk to coaches, most, if not all say that the worst thing about youth sports are parents. And so that's what I'm highlighting uh, is these experiences and encounters with players and parents and showcasing how, A guy like Chuck, who often is characterized as crazy, um, (laughs) old school in a negative light, um, you know, that in fact, when you look at what goes on in our practices and what and the relationships that Chuck has with kids, that it's much deeper than basketball. Mm -hmm. That what he gives them is life skills training. And so I'm highlighting Chuck's approach to show how there's positive cultural capital that comes from this community perspective, you know, and in giving these kids uh, the desire to, to, to push for higher expectations and teaching them about loyalty and really t- talking to them about persisting and trying to live life in kind of these simple fundamental things, right? So that you, you keep basketball simple, you practice, you work hard, and it'll be good to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, this book is really, a, 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 you know, paying homage to him and talks about my relationship with him and our deep relationships with players, former players as well as current players. And then I'm working on a third book, which is about where NBA players come from. So hmm. taking from Philadelphia as a basketball city, that starting, that initial question, I did, you know, some quick and dirty Estimates by looking at NBA rosters, and now we've done more systematic studies of this, and, have, and and see the pattern of where NBA players come, where their hometowns are, and so knowing that this process is not simply about, you know, biology, right? As mm-hmm. I've highlighted, I want to understand well what's the role of city of the place in how these players develop. And are there the same kind of networks in these other cities? And, it, and is the mobility pattern, is the trajectory the same? So I'm really looking at trying to do this cross-city comparison and see if my findings for Philadelphia, when you think of how my book contributes to understanding basketball mobility at that city level and, and bigger, are there some universal points um, you know, that,
1: that I can take from it. I look forward to reading them, because, and especially the book on Chuck, because Chuck, uh, as much as you featured him in the book, he was he's just a great character, and it would be interesting to, to read more about him. And I can tell, uh, not only with Chuck, but with Jermaine and, and Ray, um, You know, one of the great things about this book is that, that you clearly uh, have this close relationship with them, but then when you turn back to the end notes... You know, you've clearly done your work in terms of the the scholarly literature and the theory, and uh, and so it, it was really a great book to read. It 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 was a sociology book that is a page turner. So I would think that'd be a compliment. Yeah,
2: that is fantastic. Yeah, it's the ultimate compliment. Thank yeah. you so much.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Scott Brooks about his book, Black Men Can't Shoot, published in 2009 by the University of Chicago Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from military history to religious studies. If you like what you heard here, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.